Street House Podcast, where we gather at the table to hear each other's stories. I'm your host, Angie Smith, and I am so glad that you're here. Please pull up a chair and join us. Welcome to the table. Today, we are going to be doing the first of two weeks talking about adoption. And today, we're going to be talking about what should I know about adoption from the perspective of an adoptee, from someone who's been adopted. Part of this came out of a conversation that I actually had with my guest today. My guest is Anna Friend. And I met Anna. Actually, her parents went to the church that I go to, Mm -hmm. and her father had passed away, and she is a beautiful, talented artist and had made the programs for the funeral, came into the church office where I was working, and we ended up started, we started talking and um, started to become friends and then have talked on and off. And one day um, I was selling my keyboard and Anna bought it and she came over and we ended up standing on my porch for like an hour talking. <laughs> and out of that conversation, I thought, wow, I, her story should be told and shared. And so I'm so grateful to have Anna Friend on the show today. Welcome, Anna. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> So I'm not sure where it is that you would want to start, but when you think about your perspective as an adoptee, Mm -hmm. wanting to say to someone who's asking, what should I know about adoption? Maybe we'll just start with a kind of an overview of what your story is Mm -hmm. with adoption. Yeah, I think I have a little preface (laughs) that I was thinking Mm -hmm. about in the car, and um, I was just thinking about how unique each story is Mm -hmm. and how even even my adoption story, as I was growing up, it didn't feel like it fit in anywhere. Mm. It didn't feel like it fit in with other adoption stories even. Okay. Because I, I think I was under the impression growing up that maybe it, there was a place where it should fit. Mm. Um, but I really struggled with placing my story with kind of, I guess, other other people. So that being said, I will I'll cap over a little bit of what what my story is like, because it, it is very unique, but I think that helps me see that each and every story is going to be extremely unique because you've got one individual <laughs> that you're right. taking into a home from a completely different background. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about you saying that every guest I've had in this series has talked about that, yeah. talked about the hesitation to think, oh, well, I know all about adoption from the perspective yeah. of an adoptee because I've heard one story. So that's a great disclaimer to have before we have our conversation. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think so. For my story, like, I was an adopted, uh, older adoptee. Um, I, I believe I was six. Honestly, the adoption technically wasn't final until I was 12 mm. because there was a lot of process for my parents. So I, I got to see, as an older kid, kind of the struggle that my parents had a fight against for mm. for us kids. Mm-hmm. It was myself and my biological brother. We got to stay together through everything, and and we we've got such a special relationship now. We're, we're well, best with, friends. Yeah, and that's a really unique part of your story because a lot yeah. of children are split apart, aren't they? They, they are often. It's very very special to be able to have your sibling. I don't know too many people who have had that experience. I'll go a little bit into the history of my. My background, I am um, half Korean and half Swedish. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> there's some unpredictability even just with the way that I look mm-hmm. and then with, with my story. So that's kind of been a theme throughout what I've experienced growing up is 
I encounter people who want to know more or know something, and I tend to go against what is implanted in their mind when they first see me. Okay. I'm a contradiction to what they're they're seeing Can you or say, what they're say hearing. Say more about that. Yeah. That would be an example of that. So you begin a conversation, you get to know someone, and they hear that you're adopted. So they'll wonder, oh, are you adopted? So you're half Korean, so you must be adopted from oh, Korea. Oh, Korea. Korea. International adoption. Which... Kind of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I can say kind of. Or or they'll see hear that I'm half Swedish, so they'll think, okay, well, you know, you had to have been here. So people are already trying to, when I meet them, usually try to implement what they know mm-hmm. into what, what my story, story is. is. So mm-hmm. that's always been fascinating. I kind of enjoy listening to people guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also a fun t- fun. Um, opportunity for me to now as an adult sh- kind of educate people on um on how unique our stories are as a kid I think that was a big struggle for me because mm-hmm. those questions kind of triggered a lot of I- those identity issues that I struggled with but then I would tell people I, I learned I kind of gained some some strength and I I guess confidence uh, the more I told my story mm-hmm. I think that started happening in high school where okay. I'd start to tell my friends like no this is what happened so, so it did happen so what did happen? So my, my, I call him my birth father, birth father Steve. He was stationed in Korea as um, an army, an army guy. I don't know, I don't know exactly what he was, mm-hmm. soldier. He, he met our mom. I, I think it was at a subway station. <laughs> and there was a monsoon in Korea at the time. And she couldn't go home. And the subways weren't running. So they had met that way. He, he took her back to the barracks and said, you can just stay here. They ended up having a relationship and caring for each other. And I was conceived out of that relationship. Mm-hmm. And my younger brother was too. So I was, I was born on an army base in Korea. So yes, I was born in Korea, but... On American soil. On American soil. <laughs> And I did not go through um, orphanages in Korea, which is a lot of uh, a lot of uh, Minnesotan Korean adoptees have come from those orphanages mm-hmm. in Korea. So that was one place that I kind of struggled with because there were so many camps for Korean adoptees mm-hmm. that I grew mm-hmm. up knowing about, but I never I never partook in that because I didn't I didn't fit in. Okay, you know my story didn't fit there, so. Um, then later he was stationed in Texas and that's where Jerry was born. So Jerry was born in Texas Okay. on an army base. And our mom, our mom really struggled with the culture shock. Mm-hmm. So she ended up leaving and flying back to Korea. And that was oh. really, really hard on our dad. And I, I don't know much about her background, mm-hmm. but I know a little bit from what my, fa- my biological family knew meeting her um but my dad had uh some some mental uh, issues he was there's a specific kind paranoia he had paranoia schizophrenia Mm -hmm. so i don't want to share too much because this is his story but that was a struggle for him Mm -hmm. um well and then to have your wife leave you and to have two small children a lot of things for him i can only imagine Mm -hmm. um so i think after that we moved up to minnesota because his family lives up here okay (laughs) so that's how I ended up here 
that's my Swedish side of the family. I I knew them growing up quite a bit. I actually lived with my grandmother Lois mm-hmm. with that's his mother with him and Jerry when we moved back to Minnesota or up to Minnesota. We we tried, I guess he tried to start a new life with us and try to make things better. We would go camping, and unfortunately on one of these camping trips, he had abused me as a little girl. Mm-hmm. And I don't, praise God, I don't remember. I think I must have been three years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did tell my grandma. Mm-hmm. Having her, I know from what I, from what I know and what I remember of her, she's still around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was very involved and very much of an advocate for my brother and I. Mm-hmm. So knowing that role... I can only I can imagine is why I would share that with her because she was she was safe she was a safe person she, for yeah, you yeah she was stable mm-hmm. she was a mother figure for me and very special so uh, she had to do the hard thing her her husband actually had had done some things too so it was a generational thing so when when she prayed about it and talked to the Lord about her own son. Uh, and reporting him, that was really hard, but she knew she needed to do it to kind of oh. end and what the was cycle. happening mm-hmm. in that family. So, so, so she brave. did it. Yeah. Yeah. She's an amazing woman. So he, he ended up in jail and he was there for, for a long time. I just knew him growing up as, as the, honestly, my, my dad who had hurt me, I didn't know what was wrong with me when I was growing up because mm-hmm. I knew I knew that part of my story. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents didn't feel like it was necessary to hide things from me. They trusted God uh, to help me work through those things. But um, but yeah, he was there till I was 18. He was, that's wow. a long time. So then when he went to jail, then were you and your brother, did you stay with your grandmother or then were yeah. you placed or... We stayed with grandma for a little bit. Her husband had passed away the year I was born. Mm. So it was really hard for her to to grieve, I think, that. And mm-hmm. then to take on these two toddlers. One well, is and, a toddler, one's an infant. Right, right. Yeah, that's a lot of work. So we did go through um, the foster system for about, uh, well, until six, age six. Mm-hmm. But what's really special and I really feel it's God's hand of protection over my life. My That grandmother is a strong Christian woman. Mm-hmm. Prayer was saturating everything that she put around us kids. Mm-hmm. Even in the foster care, we, we didn't have bad experiences. Mm-hmm. It could have been, it could have been bad, but she made sure that we were with family. She made sure that we were with safe people, mm-hmm. people within her church community, mm-hmm. um, people that she knew and trusted what an advocate yeah she is i mean to to make the brave decision to report her son and then also the brave decision that that taking care of two young children was beyond her Mm -hmm. but then to make sure to not just let them give up or cut ties Mm -hmm. but to make sure that you were taken care of that's she's a remarkable woman yes and I still, I still love her. I still see her. I still, she's still a very, very integral part of my life. Mm. So that just kind of shows the impact that just one, one person can right, have right. on a child. Right, exactly. So, I mean, I guess that's one thing people can take away is if you know of a kid who is in a broken situation or a broken home or in the middle of this, mm-hmm. 
to really be an advocate for them and ask God, how, how can I, how can I help? Mm-hmm. What is helpful? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, a lot of, like, I have a lot of visual sharp memories of the, the foster care and it wasn't bad. It was just, I think I, I found that it was hard for me to learn things like sharing with other kids mm-hmm. or. Well, just that uh, not settled. Yeah. I mean, I think that even if you're with people who are good people who are not hurting you, yeah. I don't think that, I've never been in foster care, so I'm just assuming, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that it w- it's, it was, it's still a hard experience. You're yes. still, your whole life is still upte- upheaved yeah. and you're with people that you don't know. You get mm-hmm. to know them, but still, still feel like it's I would scary. like shaky ground. Like yeah. it's not, not it's quite not stable. stable. Right. It's not, a, it's not. Which finally, when we we were placed in a home, we got we got to help participate in selecting the home. Grandma made sure we felt comfortable, so she asked us like, "Do do you want to be here?" Mm-hmm. And we said yes. We had spent the night there to test it out once, and we came back to Grandma's house, and she said, "Do you want to be there?" We said, "Yes, we do. We like it there." Mm. She, I remember, she prayed with us. I remember sitting on her lap in her wooden rocking chair, and mm-hmm. Jerry was sitting on the other side, and she just prayed with us. And um, I have no idea what she prayed, mm-hmm. but I remember that memory, and it was really special. After being in that home, uh, the Mills home. Oh, you were in foster care in their home. Technically. Yep, technically they were registered as a foster home, okay. hoping to adopt. They okay. really wanted to adopt us two kids. They got connected with my grandma through the church. So okay. she knew someone at Calvary. Oh, okay. Yep. And that's where, that's where you go. Yeah. So I think they got connected through that somehow with my parents being in choir. Oh, okay. They knew someone that knew someone. And a prayer request they had had, I think at the time, was to adopt Okay. Two more children. They had already had Matthew, the older. Right. Who they adopted in Illinois. Isn't that the yeah. story? Yeah. Okay. And he was he was young. He was six six days old. So we had a diverse family. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, those I guess I call them my my baggage, kind of like stones that I carried around. Was was one was that feeling of rejection. I I kept that with me for a long time because mm-hmm. I was very used to moving and not having stable. Mm-hmm. environment so I think I just I expected for this family to give up on me which was a hard thing for all of us for my parents because they had a really I know my mom with having a daughter it was really a struggle for her to see me not know how to accept the love mm. that she had offered and that my dad had been trying to pour out because I just it was a self-protection Right for if I got rejected again. Right. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I mean, for the first because you were six mm-hmm. by this time, yeah. and the first six years had been about survival, hadn't yes. they? Yep. <laughs> and so, and as a child, when I mean, that's hard for an it would be hard for an adult to be in a situation like that mm-hmm. to find words or to process through that. But then for a child to do that, it makes sense that it would be so much, so much yeah. harder and not have words. For what you're feeling or just knowing that, yeah, like, is this, am I, is it, is what I'm saying resonating with you? It is. Like, sur- like it's it a was surviving. a survival state. I think I've heard people say that people who, kids who are adopted at an older age sometimes do not develop on a right timeline. Okay. I, I was thinking about this in the car and 
I know for me, I didn't I didn't really have any learning issues. I I loved the performance aspect of school. Mm-hmm. I was a a good student. That was kind of where I would earn mm-hmm. <laughs> earn myself, mm-hmm. I guess, some acknowledged <laughs> affirmation. But um, I think what it was was I I had developed in a different way. Okay, and that was that survival instinct. So, um, so maybe emotionally, it, yeah, because I became as a little girl, I actually became very smart and very manipulative Mm. I became very aware of how people responded to me and that was an aspect of how I think I personally understood my not my need for survival Mm -hmm. and I was a couple years older than my younger brother my younger brother he has his own his even though we're from the same family the same background the same experience the way that he processed things were extremely different than than I did Mm -hmm. because he's a different person and Mm -hmm. he also was a couple years younger Mm -hmm. a year and a half and it's amazing that age gap of only a year and a half can affect the way someone is growing up too yeah well different personalities I have three older sisters all four of us are so different Yeah. yeah So, yes, just saying yes, I get the yeah. why your brother's story would be different from so, your story because he's yes. a different person. Very different person. Yeah. Our, our bond was close. But I think, yeah, so I guess with with all the moving and, and knowing what I had, had come from in this new family, my biggest struggles, I guess, were uh, rejection. Uh, my identity was mm-hmm. questioned. I I didn't know. Too, I, I looked very Asian. I do look very mm-hmm. Asian. <laughs> but I know I knew my Swedish family mm-hmm. and I knew the Mills family. And something deep down really wanted, I wanted to identify with what I looked like. Mm-hmm. But I never felt it. I never felt that I fit into what my body was, you know? Well, and even you talked about talking to other people who are look like me right but have a completely different story than you but similar story to each similar story to Mm -hmm. each other having been adopted directly from korea and gone through the orphanage process so yeah that would be difficult so then what did that look like so you went and started living with them when you were six you said the adoption was final when you were 12 Mm -hmm. so then what after you know being there over time what did that how did things kind of progress out um, the first, those first six years were hard, uh, for me. Mm-hmm. I think I, when we were asked if we wanted to stay there, we said, yes, I think partially knowing my personality now, I wonder if it's because it was new and exciting mm-hmm. and I love change. Mm-hmm. I love changing my environment in the home. I love when we, when my husband and I move, <laughs> no, no one else likes that. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm so opposite of that. I, I know. I think even my grandma had told me we had moved almost 20 or something times before being placed. So you wow. can imagine that was such a, that was my stability. Well, that was, was your normal. Movement, mm-hmm. Was going right. and, and going from one place to the next. And so I, I do think in the home I remember feeling like I was just waiting for the day for them to tell me I was going to go to a new home. Okay. I didn't, I didn't quite understand that that was it. I didn't know that that home was going to be the final home. Mm -hmm. And I think I really struggled with that because, um, the moving was kind of a, 
an escape for me mm-hmm. when things were uncomfortable or when I didn't like things. I knew I knew that something new was just around the corner. Mm. And so I think that was hard on my parents because here I am, a little girl that they want to love and, mm-hmm. and keep and cherish and take care of. But yet I, I was just waiting for them to give up on me. Mm. And I carried that expectation into the relationship with my parents. And so so we had a, a rough time. I think there are very fond, good memories that I have. It wasn't bad all the time. Mm-hmm. But there were, you know, we would go do family events together. They were very intentional about doing little trips or little uh, why we would go to the Y and swim. And so we, we had all these these family things. rituals yeah mm-hmm. but it was the the issues that i had were were so deep uh deeply ingrained into how i was raised mm-hmm. so and those those issues didn't just carry into that 6 to 12 age gap it actually amplified in high school when those hormones are growing and when those questions are running in your mind and you want to know who you are and you, you're starting to wonder what purpose is. Mm-hmm. And so in high school, I just, I think struggling with I- identity and the rejection made it really hard as I got older even because mm-hmm. I was looking for something to affirm me or to reassure me. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't finding it. I mean, even there were, I remember there were a couple girls in the high school I was at and they were Korean adoptees. Um, and I, I think a young boy. And I just, I wanted to, I wanted to connect with them. So in that way, but I just, mm-hmm. I couldn't, you know. So I just remember in high school, even in the friendships and the relationships, wanting to go deeper on in a deeper friendship with people and relating to people in a way that was beyond just surface but mm-hmm. that w- I couldn't find it mm-hmm. <laughs> you know so and that so that was high school and then yeah. what and and you are so yeah. today you're married and you're I expecting 29 <laughs> with a baby yeah. <laughs> <in> my belly <laughs> and so what you know what has the process looked like for you to to go from the way that you felt in high school looking for affection mm-hmm. and your identity to today and we've had other conversations, so <laughs> yeah. I know standing yeah. firm in your identity. What what has that looked like, and what was what was it that made the difference? Yeah, oh, that's a mess. Let me tell you that. When <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of it was uh, growing up, my whole life. When I take a big glance at the big picture, mm-hmm. I had spoken over myself. I am rejected. Mm. I don't have a place. I belong. I don't fit in. I felt dirty because of the things that had Mm. been done to me Mm -hmm. in my childhood. I felt unworthy with that dirtiness. So I felt like no one would truly want to know me or truly want to be close to me. Or if they were, because it was the closest people that had hurt me. Mm, They may hurt you. Like my father. Mm -hmm. Or losing all the families that I had gotten to know. I became so fearful of letting people close. Mm -hmm. So all of those things carried into my young adult life. I I wouldn't let people close to me. If people started to get close, I would push them away. So I I isolated myself because Mm -hmm. of what I believed about myself. Mm -hmm. I put myself in a position of not 
not getting close friendships. Um, amazingly, the, Nick is actually a really special part of my story. That's my now husband. We started dating in high school. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> we knew each other in my sixth grade. Okay. We were friends in grade school. So he's been this little piece that I almost feel like God just placed in my life when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. And just God was smiling up there like <laughs> he knew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he knew the story. And yeah, so we started dating in high school. And the reason why I really was attracted to him was his sense of morals. So and he felt safe. He didn't seem like all the like uh, all the other guys that mm-hmm. were going to that could hurt me, mm-hmm. that maybe just wanted to take advantage of my wanting affection Mm because I had been taken advantage in the past. Mm -hmm. So I was really attracted to him and he stuck with me through all of my young adult, I call it my rebellion. Mm -hmm. And that can be a whole nother conversation on another topic. But I mean, I was, I had gotten involved in drinking. A lot of partying was my Mm -hmm. lifestyle. I was an exotic dancer for a little while. So just this whole It's like everywhere that I wanted to belong to, Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I could. So I went in the way opposite direction, Mm -hmm. I suppose, and I became a rebel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They say rebel without a cause, but I had a cause and it was for myself. It was that survivor instinct. And when you were in all those places, did you feel, was there some like visceral feeling of belonging or was it just a numbing of pain? Um, I would say half. So the drinking, the fun, the partying, that would have been my numbing escape. Mm -hmm. Um, The brief time that I was dancing, that was a power thing. Mm. So that gave me power. It made me feel powerful. But really, that piece, I was not. I mean, eventually you realize you're not powerful. Mm. You realize you're actually a a slave to a system. Mm. Mm -hmm. My, My boyfriend at the time, Nick... He didn't know about what I had been doing. He wanted to break up with me very badly because I was damaging him. I was damaging every relationship around me because I was pushing everyone away. Mm-hmm. He would try to get closer. I'd push him away somehow. I don't even know how it worked. <laughs> how it worked. I don't know what drew him to me because, I mean, by this time in my life, I had I had been under uh, depression and anxiety that... I thought was inescapable. I mean, mm-hmm. that was why I was numbing myself with, with alcohol, and I didn't respect any I, myself. I didn't respect myself. And Gal, your story sounds a lot like Hosea <laughs> and Gomer. Yes, where just Hosea loved her. And, oh, that's gonna make me teary. Yep, <laughs> yeah, and kept chasing after yeah. her and going after her. Yeah, that's him. <laughs> and still to this day, that's him. He's a very special man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can take a minute. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. I love that guy. <laughs> but yeah, so it's like, had God not placed Nick in my high school experience mm-hmm. to give me a, a sample of what it looks like to be affirmed by someone, cared for by someone who genuinely cared for me, even at such a young age. Well, and he must have pushed. I mean, he must have pushed in. Yeah. When you were trying to push away. I think so. He's very steady and very firm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we've both done some growing together. Uh, When I finally, so I guess the turning point for me, I was actually 
I was going to take my life. I was done. Mm. I had thought about it for years. I honestly think I was clinically depressed since I was six or before because of all that I had been through. Mm -hmm. I had, I mean, I had thoughts as a little girl. I just felt like a waste of space. I felt like trash all the time. Mm -hmm. And so that, that carried up into that young adult life. So, so yeah, my turning point was that, that night I was in, I locked myself in the bathroom that I was living in with, with some roommates and yeah, that was the night I was going to do it. But I remember sobbing on the floor and crying. And I actually, I cried out because that home, that Mills family I grew up in, that mm-hmm. grandma that I had in my life mm-hmm. were, were Christians and they introduced me to Jesus when I was little. So I knew of this Jesus. Mm-hmm. I did accept him into my heart when I was seven or something. I didn't really understand what that meant. After all these years of being so angry at God, because, again, I was so rebellious. I think half of it was I didn't really believe in what, what this whole religion was. I didn't really believe in a God that was loving to allow these things to happen to a little girl mm-hmm. and to not step in mm-hmm. when someone's crying or hurting out. Because there was, I mean, so many nights in high school and younger, I just remember crying. I just spent a lot of time crying. Mm-hmm. But I cried out that night, and and I felt this peace washed over me and the thoughts of suicide started to to leave i felt hope for the first time mm-hmm. and it was when i said i i bargained i i don't think i fully surrendered this night i just <laughs> i bargained but the lord knows me and he knows my heart but i told him mm-hmm. i said lord if you're real if you're real and you're loving um i need you to show me and if you're going to show me I'm willing to to follow Mm. and so so that was kind of the change of things and I felt him tell me to uh, go back to college Mm. and call my mom the next day and see if she'd be willing to let me move back home and uh, we didn't have a good relationship on the (laughs) the the note that I left off on Mm mm-hmm I did not think she would accept me. And so I really identified at this point with the prodigal son. Mm. My mom said yes. She went above and beyond and even let me keep my kitties. (laughs) (laughs) She's allergic to them. Um, Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's why it's a big deal. That is a big deal. Um, So I moved back to my parents' house and that's when I started going back to college at Northwestern and pursuing that art was the art, an art an art degree was really what I had wanted. I didn't really understand how that could be purposeful, but that's where God was leading me at the time. And through all that was was Nick. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he he was not a professional at dealing with someone who had struggled with depression, but for some reason we made it through and. I ended up telling him all the things that I had done and mm-hmm. been through. When I had decided to follow Jesus, I I said, if, I, if I'm going to follow Jesus and we're serious about staying together, I really feel like you should too. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to be with you if you're willing to follow Jesus with me. And he said, okay. And so we started before we even got engaged. I think it was when we were talking about engagement, we started getting in the word together and trying to find a church together and really mm-hmm. establishing some steps to, uh, I guess, build 
a new foundation, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. stability that I needed. It wasn't it wasn't Nick. I had hoped it would be him. Mm-hmm. I had hoped it he would fulfill those needs that mm-hmm. I had, mm-hmm. but it was it was really when he had agreed to uh, walk the journey with me of following Christ that I found those things. So it's been a slow journey since then, but the turning point was was that night I surrendered to the Lord and it didn't happen fast. That I still struggled with depression as a young believer. Mm-hmm. I still struggled with anxiety as a young believer. I still struggled with a lot of the issues I had from my past from being an you know, an older adopted kid. I still struggled with identity. I still struggled with looking Asian and feeling really white on the inside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and are those things that from time to time I me mean, you're using past yeah. tense struggled? Yeah. I mean, are they still things that from time to time will try to they pop up. I think I think in our walk in general, the enemy likes to use those those things and he'll try to pop them up in like mm-hmm. little weeds and mm-hmm. or surprises. Mm-hmm. There it's not a struggle where I'm walking into I'm I'm off of antidepressants. I've been off since 2000 and and uh, 14, I think. But, you know, you know, you were there when my dad had passed away. That was a really dark time for me. Mm-hmm. Um that was the closest I had felt to that same darkness I felt when I was depressed. Mm. And I wasn't, you know, I I knew it wasn't for me to walk in and that wasn't a path for me to go down because I trusted I trusted the Lord above all else, but it it was still very dark and it was still very hard and I I still mm. had those questions that popped up from when I was a kid. There's like mm. a grief big, is like that, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It triggers things mm-hmm, a lot so many things mm-hmm. so yeah i say struggled in past tense because i know i'm free mm-hmm. but yes they still they will still pop up and i'm you know i just know where to put them now mm-hmm. they go under my foot <laughs> <laughs> when it's interesting as i was listening to your story it it wasn't that there weren't people who were trying to love you right but the change came when you allowed them to like a change in you had to happen a yeah. change in your heart had to happen. Yeah. And so I just think of I mean I'm not an a I'm not an adoptee, mm-hmm. I'm not an adoptive parent, but I would so I I can only try to appreciate what it would be like to be an adoptee of all of those feelings and you know what you're going through. So I, I guess I'm looking mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I guess I just want to acknowledge how hard it is on both sides mm-hmm. for an adoptee to get to a place to trust again. Yeah. And for an adoptive parent to continue to be loving and trustworthy mm-hmm. until the very bitter end. Yeah. I mean my like my parents really never saw the change until after I was married. Mm. A married woman. <laughs> Even before my dad had passed away he had told me, he said Anna, I was so I was worried most about you and how you were going to turn out because of what you had been through. But I'm I'm so pleased and I'm so blessed mm. because he got to see the fruit mm. of of God's work in my life mm-hmm. through all of through all of the darkness I had walked through the, and honestly all the darkness I had chosen for some time for myself. Mm-hmm. I know he was blessed to have seen that. And I'm glad I was able to share that with him before he had gone home. But my encouragement 
I, I always, I love encouraging parents who are thinking about adopting or in the middle of an adoption or even who have kids who are just rebellious <laughs> children, mm-hmm. continue to pray for them. Like that's, it's not the least you can do. It's actually the most powerful thing that you can do is surrendering your children to what what God has. And it's scary. I can't, now that I'm, <laughs> I'm a mom, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't imagine the pain of watching those things or knowing those things that your child has come out of. And I can understand why maybe my parents wanted to come in and fix everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But so, so many of those fixing things, I mean, for me, it was me and my personality. I was rebellious by nature. <laughs> uh, uh, they pushed is me in the wrong... Pa- should that be past in Santa? <laughs> no, no. I'm still a rebel, but now I'm a rebel with a cause, yeah. and my cause is Jesus. But <laughs> um, yeah, I'm still stubborn, but I'm stubborn for some for some good, good things. Reasons. Yeah. I, I think because... My parents are caring. My parents are loving and they wanted the best for each of us kids. But it was just really hard to navigate because you got these three different children and these three different needs. Mm-hmm. But I just want I just really want people to know on the outside, especially as parents, to know like there really is a hope that can change the hearts of people. And when there's a heart change involved, uh, restoration happens and it starts in the heart but it it really does flow out from there Mm -hmm. and my life is evidence of watching these relationships be restored I talked a little bit about how rough it was for my mom and I Mm -hmm. uh, but we do have a completely restored relationship because of the heart change that God has done in my heart Mm -hmm. my dad and I were able to have a really close relationship before he had passed away that I didn't get as a little girl because he had and I respect him, but he had really respected me as a little girl. He didn't want to touch me, so he was very careful about he placing me on his lap, mm. you know, as a mm-hmm. as a dad, or a lot of the physical touch that I think could have been helpful in in a healthy light. Mm-hmm. I didn't get that because he was so fearful of hurting me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got I got all of that, and you know, and not everyone's gonna have the same story as me. I don't know the timeline of people's lives. But I do know that the biggest piece for me is my testimony is when I let God take control mm-hmm. and soften my heart and start to heal my heart and show me these areas that I, I did struggle with and mm-hmm. and help me become aware so that as a woman who's going to be a mom, you know, I can hopefully <laughs> help my daughter because we know it's a girl mm-hmm. and help my daughter with these things you know mm-hmm. she's gonna she's gonna face some of the similar things she's not adopted she'll be adopted hopefully into god's family but mm-hmm. um she's not gonna look like every other little girl she's gonna have a unique story because my story is actually gonna be a part of her story right so yeah. is there something that you would anything that you would want to say to an adoptee who's I mean, I don't, mm-hmm. is there anything that uh, someone who has been adopted that's struggling with identity and struggling? Yeah, I I know at the time, it's, it's hard because when I was younger, even in college, I'd hear stories of people who went through some hard things and they came out all right in the end and I would roll my eyes. 
I didn't care. They mm-hmm. hadn't seen what I had seen. They hadn't been through what I had been through. They hadn't known the hurt that I had hurt and felt, and they hadn't known the depression on the level that I felt I had went through alone. Mm-hmm. So I guess my heart is if there's someone who feels like that, who feels like their story is too hard or their story is too dark or they're too out of reach or they're too lost or they're too discarded or they feel like trash all I can do is really speak life I can't tell them that (laughs) you know I I can I wish I could say everything's gonna get better everything's gonna be fixed but what I can say is that they're valuable Mm -hmm. because these are things that I have found that they're valuable they're treasured they're not trash they're not worthless that they were actually created with intent mm-hmm. and design and purpose and that everything that they're coming up against that is so dark because I'm not going to tell them that what their experience is not real. It mm-hmm. is real. Mm-hmm. That darkness they walk through, it's real. The depression they feel is real. But when they understand that what they're walking through can be turned around in a, in a powerful way, to help others because that's the choice you can sit under it I sat under it for years mm-hmm. I accepted it for years but when I when I began to want to help other people who were like me that's also when I, I started to see a change was taking that hope and realizing because like I said when I surrendered to the Lord nothing was fixed right away mm-hmm. it was just an act of surrender following his leading but then he led me to have a heart for people mm. So Mm -hmm. that's my hope is that kids who are going through like really dark things that are legitimately dark and Mm -hmm. hard Mm -hmm. for them to know their value and their worth in that darkness. They may be in it for a while, but there can be purpose formed from it. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say like everything that I went through. I don't know that. God put it on me because he, you know, he knew that I was going to turn out this way. I think there, it came, I came out and there was, a, you know, things had produced fruit because of him. But a lot of that work was the enemy. God allowed it to happen. Yes. He didn't cause it right. to happen. I, yeah. And, and a, he can make good of it despite whatever it is. What, yeah. yeah. Doesn't matter. Which when you're in the midst of it, it's hard that to feels see. trite. Yeah. Feels trite to have someone say, oh, God, we can make good of this. Well, you don't know. Yeah. You, yeah. you don't know. Yeah. So. That's why I hesitated <laughs> even asking the question because when someone's in a dark place, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, and I love what you said because it's just speaking to their value mm-hmm. and that they're not lost. Yeah. They're, they're not, a, you're never a lost right. cause. Um, part of my family history is uh, Scottish line. Mm-hmm. And so every family has a crest and a family motto. Yeah. And one of my family's mottos is, well, I breathe, I hope. Wow. And I love that. Like, as long as you draw breath, there is hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's really cool. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> oh, that is true. I mean, ultimately, I think when any situation I look at the pattern, uh, Grandma Lois, she spoke truth over me. She prayed for me when I wasn't looking, and she spoke truth over me. Mm-hmm. And, and did the best that she could 
mm-hmm. in the circumstance. Mm-hmm. And there are many people that stepped in, even even foster families I can think of, my parents and people that I met along the way, my, my mentor mm-hmm. that I met at college, Satis. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's what she did. She prayed on the sidelines, sometimes mm-hmm. with me if I needed it. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, she spoke truth into me. Mm-hmm. And I met her at my darkest time. That was a year after my, my suicide attempt. I think for anyone going through anything, the best we can do is, is just speaking truth into them, mm-hmm. value, helping them see if they're in a place where they can't see it be, because of the circumstances they've went through or the, the history they've had, they really just need to hear that they're valued. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. My skin color really doesn't matter. I know that now. Mm-hmm. But when I was younger, I, d- I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that I'm valuable because because I am. Because I you're am. made in God's image. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he sees fit that I am. Mm-hmm. Right. I can question it all I want. Sometimes I do. Mm-hmm. But it's not I'm valuable because I'm you know, my story's unique, or I'm half Korean and half Swedish, or I'm valuable because I'm good at drawing. It's literally just because he says so. So that's the message mm-hmm. that we deliver. That's the message I'm, I'm hoping to deliver to people is it. You you're know, valuable, period, full stop, no yeah. exceptions. And you're, you're not rejected, you're accepted. Right. You know? It's hard mm-hmm. to see it, but we are. And So let's yeah. talk a little bit. You, we mentioned this a couple of times. You went to school for art, yeah. and you're an artist. I mean, you do amazing work. So if somebody <laughs> wanted to, and I'll put this in the show notes, if someone mm-hmm. wanted to follow to be able to see your work, where are some places that they should go? Yes, right now <laughs> on Facebook. <laughs> you can go to Anna Front Art and Illustration to see my personal work. Mm-hmm. There's some work that is up also on anchor13studio.com. That is mine, but that will eventually be more of a platform for many, many, many other artists okay. to help fight against commercial sex exploitation as well as human trafficking. So that's where you can go to see what I do. But, I mean, there's a little, <laughs> there's some purpose right there. I didn't mm-hmm. know what God was doing. And art was art was a piece of my story since I was a little girl. Mm. At age six, I have a little picture my grandma gave me from kindergarten. And it says, I want to be an artist when I grow up. It's like the little fill in the blank. And then mm-hmm. your teacher writes it in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So God had planted that. Mm-hmm. see it in me since I was going through all of those things. Right. And yet, you know, here I a am. dream that you had. Yeah. Came to be. As a kid. I love that. Right. It's just it's just funny. It makes me happy. <laughs> yep. So that's my art and that's I mean, that's a huge piece of my story on a on more of a thread level, just an interwoven piece. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. So this is the Retreat House podcast. So I ask all my guests, how do you retreat? Is it a place? Is it a practice? What does it look like for you? I am learning about this word, rest, specifically this year. (laughs) It is both physical and a spiritual aspect for me that I'm learning. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm very good at physically retreating in home. I can retreat anywhere. I can go upstairs. I like to write Mm -hmm. and I like to draw. Or I can bring both of those things to any coffee shop, but my mind will be racing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really trying to 
to balance that out so that when I'm intentionally physically resting and doing those activities that I enjoy and find rest in Mm -hmm. uh, to mentally prepare myself as well, to spiritually Mm -hmm. prepare my heart because I can physically be resting but not resting at all, I learned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Nina Barnes was on the podcast for our Advent series, and she Mm -hmm. talked about going on retreat where – She's her body stops long enough for her soul to catch up. Yes. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, I so resonate with that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So, and the other question I ask my guests mm-hmm. is if you were to use the hashtag celebrate weird, yes. what would be something that you would use that to just des- something about you that you would use that to describe? <laughs> well, the first thing I could think of because we kind of mentioned it when I first came to the table mm-hmm. <laughs> was I'm. So this whole time, everyone, I've been holding my hands interlaced (laughs) because I'm very, very active with my hands. So my friends know, and and my husband as well, when I get really excited and I get a thought in my mind that I just want to share right away, Mm -hmm. I slam the surface with my hands. Mm -hmm. Like I just slap the table or, and I scare them every time. My friends know it's coming sometimes, mm-hmm. but they jump every single time. I just, <laughs> I don't know why I do that. I thought it was normal, but I guess not everybody pounding does the table in excitement <laughs> <Yeah>. is not, <laughs> is not a normal. So <laughs> that is why my hands have been folded on my lap so right. I don't scare <laughs> Well, and something that was edited out for full disclosures, I knocked my microphone over expressing myself and tipped yes. my water. So <laughs> you get that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your story. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Retreat House podcast. Any links mentioned in the show can be found in the show notes. We want to thank Isaac Turley for his music at the beginning and end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, and we'll see you next week on the Retreat House podcast.